Hello, hello, podcasting fam, and welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and today we're going to be learning about some historical figures of Niagara Falls by visiting their final resting places at the Niagara Falls Oakwood Cemetery. Tim Baxter joins us and shares the historical significance of this cemetery, which was established in 1852, along with some incredible and sometimes sad and unfortunate tales about prominent figures in Niagara's past. We learn about a few famous Niagara Falls daredevils, including Annie Taylor, who was the first person to go over the falls in a barrel, and Homan Walsh, whose kite-flying extraordinaire skills laid the foundation for a suspension bridge that joined two nations. If you would like to see photographs of this episode, please visit curatorschoicepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page or Instagram. Okay, let's jump right in and hear from Tim at the Niagara Falls Oakwood Cemetery. So we were founded in 1852, and we have 18 and a half acres downtown, right in the heart of downtown Niagara Falls. And uh, the city kind of grew up around the cemetery because back in the day, there were a bunch of little villages. And uh, the town of Niagara was the predominant governmental agency, I guess. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like the town center of a bunch of little towns. (laughs) Yeah. So when the city became a city, the town of Niagara, which is still on the outskirts, still retains two acres of our land. It's kind of odd that the town still owns two acres of property inside the city which is weird. So you said originally it was 18 acres and now it's two. So No, no, no. It was two two of the 18 acres. Oh, was designated for the cemetery. Okay, because I was going to say, what happened to those other 16 acres of bodies? <laughs> no, they're still here. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys have people all the way back from then that are still buried there, obviously. And then up until today, it's still an active cemetery. Yes, ma'am. It, it's... Uh... We just had a uh, our annual fundraiser. It's called Spirits with the Spirits, and uh, we do uh, we have like distillers come in, and uh, we have a big party out at the mausoleum. Not a party, but uh, you know, just a get together. People like being in the cemetery at nighttime, in the mausoleum, and uh, so. But we don't have ghosts, and we don't do anything like that. And that was my point, is that we're still an active cemetery, so people would love to see ghosts, and they would love to have haunted tours and all that stuff, but we really don't do that because, I mean, uh, you know, what if your dad was buried here, or what if we're walking that line? But it is interesting. I love, I I tell people all the time, uh, I love the history. I really do. It's, I mean, I grew up in the fall, so I kind of grew up with the lore and all that stuff. So to actually be here and have kind of like hands-on, you know, I mean, these literally, I got to touch their graves, you know, if I wanted to, but these are people that I grew up reading about or, or, or whatever. So they're kind of, they're not rock stars because I wouldn't consider jumping in a barrel and <laughs> you know but i mean but they are they're from our lore and from our past and they're interesting folks there's no doubt about it yeah you kind of get to be a keeper of their history right yeah 
So that's what I was going to say that I, I love the historical part, but I I mean, we consider ourselves kind of a, a, a living museum, even though they're not living because the stories are still here. And, Mm -hmm. uh, just the fact that their grave is here, we have an opportunity to talk about their story. We're kind of like the archivists of, of their, you know, or a library, if you want. Yeah. Uh, and we get to tell the their stories. It's, it's That's the part that's fun for me. Well, and when you go, like when, when you go to the cemetery, you guys have the little brochure. And on that brochure, it talks about, you know, if you're interested in this person's story, this is where they are. And there's the little markers. And you guys have quite a few. And it seems like you're continually building on the people. You, you learn more about their history. And then you're able to kind of promote them in, in your little brochure. Right. Yeah. So a few years ago, when we first started, none of us, uh, there, was a, there was a financial issue that happened here. Uh, the people that were running the place before us were keeping some of the money for themselves. So uh, the board kind of disbanded because they felt responsible, even though they, it wasn't them. You know, I mean, so a new board was formed and a new generation of, of caretakers were brought in me included, but nobody really had cemetery experience. So it it was all a big learning process for all of us. And one of the things that we were doing was we were going to sell as a fundraising thing, those plaques on people's graves. But then we became part of the Niagara Falls National Heritage Area, which is there's 40 sites, I think, in the Niagara Uh Falls. It's, It's quite big. And um, Sarah, who is the, the executive director, said, why don't you engage public with the public and vote on uh, who they feel they should, we should do, which was an awesome idea. I mean, I don't know why any of us didn't think of it before. So we have Sarah Capen to thank us for that. And uh, so what we did was we nominate uh, six people that we feel are worthy of having a, a, a marker. And then we put the little bios out on the thing and then the public votes for three. They, uh, so it engages the public and uh, then we have an unveiling. We haven't been able to do it in a couple of years because of COVID and everything. We hope to get those going again. And sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's a family uh, that has a marker. Sometimes it's uh, a scoundrel maybe. And sometimes it's, you know, daredevils or a politician or, or whatever, but it's all interesting. That's a great way to get the public personally invested in what you're doing at the museum. Or, well, not the museum, at the cemetery, the living museum of dead individuals. <laughs> right, yeah. So who are some of your highlights that you guys have that have plaques? Well, so for instance... Uh, one of our, uh, one of our families that we have is, uh, the Pavlov family and it, it, it's not an, it wouldn't be a nationally known thing, but I mean, the Pavlov family, even residents of Niagara Falls probably don't know it, but back in 1927, they were, they, there was a car accident and seven, seven of their family members all at once were, were taken. Mm. So, um, the odd part about the Pavlovs is 
the, the father who was driving, he, he survived, which would be awful for me if I, if that happened to me. So they let him out of the hospital to go to the funerals and he was all set to go out and they went out to another cemetery out on the outskirts of town, which was Catholic. Uh, and he was told they were going to be buried together, even though the, the kids weren't baptized yet. I'm not Catholic, so I don't know all the particulars. But uh, there's consecrated ground and unconsecrated ground, and people that were baptized were supposed to be buried in the consecrated ground. Well, when they got out there, he, he just assumed that they were all going to be in a row together, maybe some not in consecrated and some in, and that wasn't the case. There, the, the mother and the one daughter were, were going to be in one spot, and the, the rest of the kids were going to be in another spot. And he said, no, 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 no. And the priest said, no, we're not going to do that. So they loaded up all seven hearses again and came back down. And they, for the time being, they put them in our receiving vault, that uh, the chapel. And then the next day it was decided, well, they're all here. We might as well just bury them here. Anyway, that was quite a story. I mean, it was, it was in the papers. And it's on our website, oakwoodniagara.org, if anybody cares to read it. But it, uh, the way the reporter of the Niagara Falls Gazette phrased everything, it was, it was, it was just an incredible story. The, the, whoever wrote it was, it's very engaging and uh, such a tragedy. But anyway, that, that was one of the, one of the uh, stories that we have. And then we have daredevils. I mean, uh, Annie Essen Taylor is our rock star. She's <laughs> she's the most popular, and she is um, okay. So people think she's a nut job, you know. She jumped in her barrel and she went over Niagara Falls, and people think she's wacky. But back in 1901, how many opportunities did a woman, a single woman, have to make a fortune? which is what she wanted, to remain comfortable for the rest of her life. She was 63 when she did it. She was a teacher. People think she was a school teacher, uh, you know, with an apple on the desk and all that stuff. But she was like, in one town, she would be a dance teacher. And then the rent money would run out, so she would move on. And she then she was a piano teacher. And then she was an etiquette teacher. And the, so she would move around quite a bit. And this was after she was widowed, too, because she had had a husband, and then their son died. They had a, a baby. I think it was a son who died in infancy, and then her husband died. So, I mean, especially back in that time, you know, you're you're not the bread maker of the family. The, the, you know, so, yeah, she was just trying to do something to, to pay her bills. She Exactly. And she, her biggest fear was to die in the poorhouse. And that's exactly what happened to her. Mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. But anyway, she was she was in Bay City, Michigan, and she was reading in the paper, there was going to be this big Pan-American exposition in Buffalo. And she thought, well, that's near Niagara Falls. A lot of people will be there. So that's when she came up with the idea to maybe go over the falls in a barrel. Because so I just heard this recently, and I've been trying to find a quote, and I don't know if it's true or not, but P.T. Barnum supposedly said, whoever conquers Niagara Falls will be a rich person. So I don't know if she heard that. It just rang true to what I think Annie was thinking. You know, I mean, 
And yeah, I guess she, you have to be kind of a, <laughs> a special person to jump in a barrel and go over the falls. Or particularly desperate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially at, she said she was 63 years old. And yep. I, I think I went to one of the wax museums in Niagara Falls and it said something that she, she said that she was in her forties, I think. She lied about her age when she went over the falls, and she was actually in her 60s. Yeah, right. She blamed it on her agent. Well, didn't he steal her barrel? Yeah. So another part of this tragic story. So he was trying to build an audience for her. He was doing her PR, and supposedly she said that he said she was 42. Supposedly she was swimming in lakes and in the mountains and all this stuff. It was all PR. Mm -hmm. Even back then, you can't trust media. <laughs> so then when she would go into, from town to town, you know, the, she'd get off the train and people are looking around her for this young, you know, vibrant woman that was, and it was Annie, you know, I mean, she really didn't sell tickets like she thought she should. She would go from town to town and, and they weren't doing very well. So her manager took the barrel and hired a pretty Annie and he went on tour and he made money. You know, he had heard the story a million times. So Annie really got messed over and uh, she spent what little money she did have trying to get that barrel back because she felt that was the key to her, you know, livelihood. Um, she hired private detectives and lawyers and, and whatnot. And supposedly in the end, the barrel was chopped up and sold off as little pieces as souvenirs by this Frank Russell, the manager. So it, it is no more, although a couple of museums around say they have the, the barrel, but it's, it's not the barrel. So, <laughs> Well, so she ended up dying penniless anyway. Yeah, she did. She, uh, 20 years after she went over, she was 83 and she was in the poor house, which is where she did not want to be. She was blind. And uh, yeah, she, she died destitute and uh, the cemetery donated the grave. And uh, then years later, a grave company, I mean, a, a memorial stone company donated the stone that she has. I'm going to butt in really quick and share with you guys Annie's book. So a year after her trip over the falls, Annie wrote a book about the entire experience called Over the Falls, Annie Edson Taylor's story of her trip, how the Horseshoe Fall was conquered. The book tells all about her life and how she came up with the idea of going over the falls in the first place, and it includes newspaper articles of her trip. It's really neat. It's only 24 pages, it's pretty short, but I have included a link to the book if anyone is interested in the show notes. It's available for free on the Internet Archive, but I did want to read the preface to you guys. It's not very long. Despite the thrilling nature of the story of which this book is designed to be an accurate record, no attempt has been made to embellish it with sensational statements. It is a plain recital of fact. Annie Edson Taylor is the only human being who has ever gone over the falls of Niagara and lived to tell the story of her experience. 
Even in its plain way, this little book has the distinguishing feature of being a story thoroughly original, a story which no other one of the million of people on this earth can truthfully tell as Annie Edson Taylor has told it. In the face of her wonderful accomplishment of having conquered the greatest waterfall in existence, Miss Taylor is not unmindful of the history of Niagara, and so it is her wish that this book be dedicated to the memory of the Indian maidens whose lives were sacrificed, as the legend of old tells us, in the days gone by when it was the custom of the tribes to offer up their fairest daughters to the great spirit. As the world has progressed, science and invention have demonstrated where mistakes were made in many fields, and it remained for Miss Taylor to show that the mistake of the Indian maidens was in trying to conquer Niagara in birch bark canoes instead of in barrels of Kentucky oak. We live to learn. Now, I was toying with the idea of doing kind of a bonus episode and reading the whole book. Like I said, it's pretty short, and um, but it's a fun, interesting read, and it's from... Annie herself. It's her own words. So I was thinking about doing it audiobook style. So be on the lookout for that if that's something that you would be interested in, in tuning into. Okay, let's get back to Tim. So her and Carlisle Graham, who is right next to her, both of them have the same stone and they were b- both in a similar situation. Both former daredevils, both penniless. What did Carlisle do? So Carlisle was a, he was a daredevil. He was a cooper. And he actually made barrels. He didn't make Annie's barrel. Annie had hers made in Bay City, Michigan. But he made, he, he made barrels. So he would go through the Whirlpool Rapids, which are Class 6 rapids, what we, what we now call Class 6, the deadliest rapids. He would go through the barrel. He went through the, bar, I mean, through the Whirlpool Rapids probably five times, I think, over, over a period of, you know, 20 years. First time he went, he uh, got out and he was sick as a dog because he was seasick. It, it, it was in the dark and he had no, uh, you know, there's no, uh, you, you couldn't see the horizon to know which way it was up. So, <laughs> so he said, he had the bright idea, well, next time I do it, I'm going to have my head sticking out. Well, when he did it, uh, a huge wave came along and slapped him and they don't know if it was the wave or if it was rock or whatever but he was deaf in one ear for the rest of his life because he had stuck his head out and the river is nothing to be toyed with uh, but anyway Carlisle was the he was like the king of the daredevils back in the day and he kept saying I'm going to go over the falls I'm going to go over the falls and uh, Annie came along and she did it so <laughs> in fact he was the one that uh, took the lid off, and he said, my God, the woman's alive. He couldn't believe it. So they were kind of, I, I guess they'd be kind of rivals. They weren't too keen on each other, and now they're side by side for eternity, you know, laying there. <laughs> so. Well, and you call that area, is it Stuntman's Row? That whole area, there's a whole big triangular piece of land, and that's called Stunt. No, Stranger's Rest. Because back back in the day, back in the 1800s, embalming wasn't what it is now. And to ship somebody back home if they had a heart attack or if they just got sick, they would just be buried here, you know, wherever they are. So it was called Stranger's Rest. Well, in, in that section, the row that Annie's in, there's like four people that we consider stunters. 
So people have over the years started calling it stunter's rest and that's fine. The latest person that we have in there uh, passed away in 2017. His name is Kirk Jones and he actually went over the falls twice. The first time he went over, it was the Horseshoe Falls, which is the Canadian Falls. And he just jumped in with his clothes. He didn't have a life preserver. He didn't have anything. And when he got to the bottom, I think he was just as surprised as anybody else that he was alive. So when he when he came out, everybody called him a stunter. And I don't think he argued too much. You know, I mean, he, I think he was kind of shocked that he made it. And then, uh, so they, they made him a... Uh, a Texas uh, circus made him a ringmaster and they called him the daredevil. Uh, but anyway, in 2017, the first time he went over was 2003. And the second time he went over was in 2017. And he did that in one of those big blow up balls that you know, like would roll down a hill, you know, or, or bang into each other at a party or mm-hmm. whatever. So he got one of those and he brought his pet boa constrictor as one would do when they're going over the falls. Poor, poor Kirk. I feel bad for Kirk. Kirk was just a, but he, um, he tried to go over in this thing. Well, they found the ball. They found Misty, the boa constrictor. They found her, her cage, never found Misty. So they don't, they assume that if she did, if Misty was real, veterinarians have said that she wouldn't have, the temperature of the water at that time wouldn't have been conducive to a boa constrictor. So they found him a few weeks later. A lot of times what happens is when you go over the falls, if you, if you make it through the rocks at the bottom, you get stuck in the river somewhere. The river's very deep, maybe 180 feet in some parts. And uh, you, yeah. can, you can get stuck under a rock or- uh, Branches or some kind of debris. Yep. I know that you do have one more happy story um, of someone and it has to do with kite flying. Yeah, now this is an awesome story and it doesn't have tragedy. Uh, so Holman Walsh, and there's a great children's book about this, the, the kite that bridged two nations. In 1848, they were going to build a suspension bridge across the gorge from America to Canada or Canada to America, however you want to look at it. And uh, they were trying to figure out a way to get the wire across the gorge because they couldn't do it because of the rapids down below couldn't take it in a boat and of course they didn't have helicopters or anything you know to fly it across so they were thinking well how about a cannon (laughs) or how about uh fireworks uh no none of those work so uh the one guy that was in charge of the building suggested a kite contest and holman was a 16 year old boy in 1848 and he went to the Canadian side and flew his kite after three or four attempts. His kite landed on the American side and they grabbed the string. Then they were able to pull the string across and t- attach a rope. And then the rope, they attached a wire. And then, you know, I mean, it kept getting bigger and bigger until it was the actual suspension bridge. So that's kind of a neat story. And he got 
Some some accounts say five dollars, some say ten. But in eighteen forty eight, either one of them would have been a pretty good amount. Especially for just flying a kite. Yeah, really. Yeah. He went on to become a banker in either South Dakota or North Dakota, and he lived until 1899 or so. And then he obviously had enough money to be shipped back here to his family in Oakwood. So, but he's here. And when Alexis O'Neill wrote the book, she, we invited her here to unveil it or, or whatever, you know, I mean, have the book signing and all that stuff. And she was like, because she was an elementary school teacher and she was like, wait a minute, I'm going to do a kid's book in a cemetery. And <laughs> But when she came, she was thrilled because, I mean, we had, uh, we had uh, kites hanging up all over the place and we had the kids, uh, we, we invited them and they were able to make their own kites. We had a lady come in, a kite expert, and she taught them how to make a kite and, uh, so it was, it was quite a, a day. We called it a family day and uh, she was able to sign her books and she loved it. And, and ever since she's been a friend of Oakwood cemeteries. Uh, so we're thrilled. There's also another book, um, The Queen of the Mist, that was written by uh, Chris Van Allsburg who wrote Jumanji and, uh, and Polar Express. So uh, he illustrated that, that that was about Annie. So uh, that's available on Amazon as well. And just the other day, uh, the kids, there were kids over in England reading The Queen of the Mist. So they had us uh, on Zoom and we were able to, I talked to some kids in Shropshire, England, so that was awesome. I mean, it, it was really, and they had very important questions like, uh, how old would Annie's husband be now? <laughs> so it was I so think, cute. I think that's really cool because unfortunately, I think there seems to be a bit of a stigma or like a taboo about cemeteries. But my mother and I have always been fairly macabre people. And I remember some of my favorite memories when I was a kid is we would walk down and take a picnic to whatever cemetery we were living close to. And we would go through and we would read all the different tombstones and see if we could find their ages and where they were from. And then we would have our picnic at the cemetery. And I tell that to people and they think it's so weird, but I find few places more peaceful than a cemetery because you can visually see these people's lives kind of summed up in an instant and you can see the love that people feel for them by what's left behind. And I just think that they're, I think they're beautiful places of rest and peace. And I greatly enjoyed visiting your cemetery. Oh, well, we appreciate that so much. Yeah. I mean, uh, Oakwood is an example of a rural cemetery as part of the rural cemetery movement. Uh, What they did in the 1830s is, or, thereabouts, was there was a trend to move the uh, town cemetery out of the center of town, out of uh, sanitary concerns. They were concerned about, you know, water runoff and um, stuff like that. Plus, they were getting full, you know, I mean, these little plots of land next to the church or whatever uh, were getting full. So they were setting up these cemeteries on the outskirts of town. 
And then people, what they would do is jump in the carriage, ride out, you know, for a, a day's ride, and they would bring their um, they would bring their picnic. And they were the original park system of America or England because uh, there were no parks back in, you know, pre-time. And parks became parks because of the cemeteries. They were manicured lawns and, and that wasn't a, a thing. So it, it's all very interesting. But when you say you had a picnic in the cemetery and people think it's weird, it's not weird at all. It's something that they, people have done for a long, long time, and uh, it, there's nothing wrong with it. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> it's just that we've gotten away from it, but uh, th- that's the way it was back in the day. Well, I agree with that 100%, and it's still <laughs> one of my favorite things to do is go visit cemeteries when I go visit somewhere interesting. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to see the, you know, the dash uh, between the birth and the death. That's a person's whole life in that little dash. And uh, it really is it, quite stunning to have, you know, when you actually think about, we have 22,000 people here. So we have 22,000 dashes or stories. Uh, and it's really amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me and talking to me about you know, the amazing stuff at your cemetery. (laughs) I love cemeteries. So I'm geeking out a little bit and the people that you have there and their stories, you guys are doing a great job in preserving their memories and incorporating your community into what you're doing at the cemetery, which is also really cool. We're we're trying to get people to come in and uh, visit. And if, if they want to, they can ride a bike or uh, just walk around. It's seven tenths of a mile around the outside. So, uh, yeah, we're trying to get people to come back to the cemetery and um, unhook from uh, the computer for a little bit and uh, get out in nature in the middle of the city and enjoy some peace and quiet. And you guys do a lot of different events as well, like you were talking about some of the ones that you have, but also reading your brochure. I mean, you guys do tours and, and all kinds of things. You're really active. Yeah, we're, well, yeah, because that's one of our missions is that we've decided to bring, to bring the public back into the cemetery. And really, I mean, I grew up uh, going by the cemetery here all my life, and it might as well have been a factory or a, a brick wall or, you know, I mean, I just, I drove by it and I never gave it a second thought. And it wasn't until I started working here 10 years ago that I, found out that amazing history it's it's just astounding to me and it's not just like oh you know joe schmo bought a drugstore and he set it up these are like the people that are here are you know sometimes had national implications for like the porter family peter porter was the uh secretary of war for john quincy adams and he pushed uh he pushed the war of 1812 uh, because he was tired of having his uh, ships stolen by Britain. So <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It really is. Well, again, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, I know. Don't you see, you get me going talking about history and then I don't shut up. Oh no, that's perfect. That's literally perfect for a podcast. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs>
Thank you everyone for joining me today at the Niagara Falls Oakwood Cemetery. I sincerely hope you enjoyed hearing more about the fascinating people of Niagara Falls. Again, if you check out Curator's Choice on Facebook or Instagram, I post pictures and interesting articles that relate to this episode and other museums and historic places that I have covered in the past. If you are also interested in supporting this podcast through Patreon, visit patreon.com slash curator's choice, and there you can choose from two different support tiers that include early access and bonus episodes. Hey, and maybe if you are so inclined and are enjoying the content, tell a friend or rate the podcast. I'm always interested in getting feedback, or if you have a museum you would really like to be covered, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Tune in next episode to hear about the American Helicopter Museum in Pennsylvania. As many of you know, this podcast publishes a new episode every first and third Tuesday of the month. And with the Patreon, I do an extra bonus episode as well. And January's bonus episode was meeting with Victor Perez at the Calvert Marine Museum and talking to him about the process of creating his sharks exhibit. So for the bonus episode of February, I'm going to be speaking with Megan Rosenblum, who's the author of Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. We talk all about how does one even get into this kind of a topic and the conservation of skin books and what kind of books there are and have been in history that have been shocking or have been found to not actually be human skin. It's another really great episode, so if you're interested, check out Patreon, and that's what will be published next month. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) ¶¶